do we have a chance of keeping warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels? And what do Brazil elections results mean for the climate? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Halloween, October 31st. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Chad declared a state of emergency after deadly floods impacted more than a million of its people. This is the tail end of the country's rainy season, but this year's rain came early and heavy. In fact, it was the most rain the country has seen in decades. While it's difficult to attribute one event to climate change, warmer air holds more moisture, which can result in more extreme rainfall events. In this case, the flooding is due to a combination of unusually heavy rain and river from being so full that they changed their path to inundate local villages. Continuing the theme of floods, Tropical Storm Nalge caused flooding and landslides in the Philippines that have killed at least 72 people. The storm hit late last week with 59 miles per hour or 95 kilometers per hour winds. It impacted three of the nation's islands, including the populous Luzon. The flooding and landslide events were made much more worse due to mountainous deforestation. Less vegetation means fewer things that can hold the ground together and absorb the water. The storm finally passed early Sunday. The Philippines gets hit by an average of 20 storms a year, but scientists warn these storms will become more powerful as climate change worsens. Meanwhile, Western Europe experienced an unusually hot October. Temperatures were expected to reach 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius over the weekend in parts of Britain, Germany, and France. This heat is mostly driven by a natural weather pattern, but regional climate scientists say warmer weather this late in the year like this will become more common due to climate change. By the way, if you want to see if your area is experiencing above or below level temperatures, Climate Central just released a map where you can find out that exact thing. So I will link that below. We have been inundated with particularly unfunny climate studies recently as world leaders gear up for the UN Climate Conference COP27 in Egypt starting Sunday. The World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, released its latest greenhouse gas bulletin that found that global greenhouse gases have reached back to pre-industrial levels, and we are actually now doing worse because 2020 and 2021 saw the highest methane levels since the records began in 1983. This undermines the main success point during last year's climate conference, COP26, which saw over 100 countries sign up to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Australia just signed that agreement, as you might remember from last Wednesday's episode, but the methane emissions data proves how non-binding this agreement is. Methane is 84 times better at trapping in heat than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. It's responsible for at least a quarter of global warming, though we're continuously seeing it holds a bigger piece of the pie than we initially thought. This increase in methane emissions is due to a combination of man-made and natural factors. Man-made factors include leaky fossil fuel infrastructure and flaring activity and increased land use changes and cattle ranching. Natural factors are essentially positive feedback loops caused by increased warming. When methane-dense ecosystems like permafrost and wetlands warm, they release more methane, which then accelerates warming. So even though these are considered natural processes, humans are still indirectly responsible. So methane emissions are on an exponential rise despite pledges to reverse this trend. What about carbon emissions? Well, 
that is one silver lining. The International Energy Agency, or IEA, released an estimate that found that this year's carbon emissions are only increasing by 1% instead of the average 6%. Scientists were expecting it to be much worse than it is, so that's good. The IEA says this is likely due to the increase in clean energy deployment. In their recent World Energy Outlook report, the IEA researchers said Russia's war in Ukraine has accelerated the push towards renewables and that the impact of the war has permanently shifted the global energy trends for decades to come. That's good, but the trend towards renewables is still not stark enough. We need to drastically decrease emissions, so the fact that there is still a positive trend is bad. Okay. This brings us into the big kahuna of studies, which is from the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. It clearly states that countries are not at all in line with keeping warming at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels like the Paris Accord requires, so much so that there is almost no route anymore that will get us there. Honestly, if you've been watching or listening to my channel long enough, you know that this is not really that surprising. Emissions need to decline by 45% by 2030 to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius at this point. We're currently at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming. Instead, we are on track to increase emissions by 10.6% through 2030. Assuming countries do exactly what they pledged, we're expected to warm the planet to about 2.5 degrees Celsius or 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit, which would spell disaster for the world's glaciers, global coral reefs, and many island nations. It would cause several places humans have inhabited for generations to no longer be livable. Frankly, anything surpassing 2 degrees Celsius is unacceptable. Countries are supposed to up their targets before each climate conference, but only 24 did this year, which is very low. The one plus side is that before we were on track to keep increasing emissions past 2030, but now it looks like we might peak by then. And then the science journal Lancet released its countdown report on Wednesday, which looks at how climate change is messing with global human health. The report was a combined effort between 99 experts from the World Health Organization and the University College of London. Heat-related deaths have increased by two-thirds over the last two decades, according to the report. Then the UNICEF released a report that same day warning that virtually all children in the world will be exposed to high heat wave frequency by 2050. According to the organization's metrics, areas that experience high heat wave frequencies see an average of 4.5 more heat waves a year than they do now. Right now, only about a quarter of the world's children experience extreme heat events. Every child will experience more heat waves, even if we are to keep warming well below 2 degrees Celsius at this point. Infants and young children are more at risk of heat illness because their bodies can't regulate temperatures as well as adults. Elderly, homeless, and health-compromised people will also be more at risk of heat illness by 2052. 2050 as well, I should say. Extreme heat is also known to exacerbate conditions like asthma, which ironically has become more common due to fossil fuel use. And finally, a study published on Friday in the journal Science Advances calculated that heat waves have cost the global economy $16 trillion from 1992 to 2013. This number accounts for extreme heat's impacts on human health, infrastructure, agriculture, and human productivity, among other things. The researchers calculated this by comparing the hottest five-day periods of each year to the regional economic data from that same period. Despite being one of the least responsible for global warming, the global south and the tropics are 
feeling the heat the most. Developed countries in Europe and North America saw the average GDP loss of 1.5% percent each year due to these heat events, while lower income regions like India and Indonesia saw their GDP drop by 6.7% annually. The researchers of the study called on countries that have been benefiting from the industrialization to pay for the damages of lower income nations. We finally got through all those depressing studies. Again, I find this stuff concerning, but not surprising based on my years of coverage. Still, if studies like this could light a fire under powerful people's butts, that would be great. We need to lift up the mood after all of those studies. Lucky for you, I have some climate victories to share. The biggest one is former leftist president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva won Brazil's presidential election. I would say this is probably the biggest news for the climate since the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. That's because Brazil controls a big chunk of the Amazon rainforest, and the current president, Bolsonaro, gave big agriculture and mining companies free reign to deforest and burn the forest, while weakening parts of the government in charge of prosecuting illegal logging and burning operations. Many environmental defenders, indigenous activists, and journalists were killed under Bolsonaro's watch, making Brazil one of the most deadly countries in the world for environmental advocates. Bolsonaro's policies resulted in Brazil seeing its highest rate of Amazon deforestation in 15 years, which resulted in some parts of the rainforest going from being a carbon sink to a carbon source. The Amazon rainforest is an essential ecosystem for maintaining global and regional climate stability. The rainforest is so important that it's recognized as its own global tipping point that shouldn't be crossed. The biome also impacts weather patterns all the way up to the U.S. It is also a huge biodiversity hub. Lula has vowed to implement a net zero deforestation policy, stop illegal mining in indigenous land, and work with other rainforest countries like Indonesia and the Congo to preserve the world's rainforest. He reiterated his support for pro-climate policies on Twitter after the election results came in, saying, Quote, Brazil is ready to resume its leading role in the fight against the climate crisis, protecting all our biomes, especially the Amazon rainforest. In our government, we were able to reduce deforestation in the Amazon by 80%. Now let's fight for zero deforestation. His previous terms as president provide a positive track record for reducing deforestation. During Lula's first term in office, Amazon deforestation dropped by 43.7%, according to Map Biomass. It dropped another 52.7%. 3% in Lula's second term. The biggest project Bolsonaro has been eyeing, which will now hopefully be avoided, is to put a road right through the Amazon to connect to Amazonia's largest city. This would drastically increase illegal logging and burning operations, undoubtedly turning the rainforest into a savanna. Bottom line, this election result could be a major win for the global climate, but we need to cross our fingers that it sticks because Bolsonaro has been threatening for months to overturn the election if he loses. Bolsonaro has a lot of allies in the military. It seems like most far-right officials have accepted Lula's win, so hopefully that will dissuade Bolsonaro from threatening democracy. But as of now, Bolsonaro has not conceded, and we might have to wait to see what happens until the official shift of power at the end of the year. Meanwhile, EU lawmakers and member countries have gone the way of California by banning new combustion engine car sales by 2035. This is the first part of the block's Fit for 55 package, which is meant to drop emissions by 55% by 2030. So car companies will need to drop their emissions by 55% by 2030 to reach 100% low emission sales by 2035. According to EU data, transportation is the only sector that has actually seen its emissions increase over the past three decades, rising by 33.5% from 1990 to 2019. Passenger vehicles are the main driver of that. In a non-EU part of Europe, 
also known as the UK, 100 universities have committed to divesting from fossil fuels. That represents about 65% of UK's higher education institutions, which represents almost 18 billion pounds in fossil fuel investments. Some universities that have made this commitment include Oxford and Cambridge. Coventry University evened the number out at 100 on Thursday. This divestment effort is being pushed by the student-led fossil-free campaign, which has been running since 2013. The University of Glasgow was the first university to divest from fossil fuels back in 2014. Great work. 53 more universities to go. There are so many climate activist events happening right now that I have set up a segment today called Activist Watch. I need a cool intro, but anyways, here we are. This is my intro. <laughs> here are some climate activism events that happened during this last week. A member of Just Stop Oil glued his hand to the glass shielding the famous girl with the pearl earring painting in the Netherlands last Thursday. He also poured red paint on his hand saying, quote, how do you feel when you see something beautiful and priceless being apparently destroyed before your eyes? Do you feel outraged? It's just a question. The next day, dozens of young Friday for Future activists marched in Glasgow, Scotland to protest inaction after COP26, which took place in that city almost a year ago. Police blocked roads to provide a safe passage for the activists. One of the event organizers had this to say, quote, we're here today, a year on from COP26, to say that we're not accepting the empty promises that were made a year ago, and we're certainly not going to accept them in a couple weeks at COP27. Then on Sunday, two members of the Last Generation group glued their hands to the handrail surrounding a dinosaur skeleton at Berlin's Natural History Museum. In their hands, they held a sign that said, what if the government doesn't have it under control? It's just a question. Quote, the dinosaurs became extinct because they couldn't withstand the massive climate changes. The same threatens us. While all of this was happening in Europe, climate protests erupted in New York and New Jersey to mark the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy. The protesters say there are still clear scars from that storm and accuse state and federal governments of not doing enough to tackle climate change. Climate change, of course, exacerbates these hurricanes through increasing rainfall and sea level rise. The protesters marched down Manhattan. Sunrise Movement activists also occupied the Black Rock office lobby for several days to protest the financial giant's lack of climate action. Activists also disrupted an episode of the TV show The View, which featured Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Cruz is a huge fossil fuel sympathizer. Activists also threw tomato soup on climate-dismissive billionaire Steven Schwartzman's apartment building. Time for the climate fails. Remember, don't get despondent, get mad. We have more bad COP27 news. The host, Egypt, plans to push gas as a climate solution like we're back in 2005. Egypt's petroleum minister stated this during the Gas Exporting Countries Forum meeting. To be clear, while gas emits less CO2 than oil and coal, it is still very much a carbon source. And to be clear, it used to be considered a transition fuel because it was cheaper than solar and wind and emitted less carbon than oil and coal. But now solar and wind are much cheaper than gas. So it would actually be a bad investment decision to move from coal to gas to clean energy instead of bypassing gas altogether. Plus, there's no room for any gas fields if we are to keep warming well below two degrees Celsius. And gas is actually a huge methane emitter, which we found out a little later on. Yet Egypt is not the only one pushing for this skewed logic. 16 other countries are expected to push gas as a solution during COP27 as well. They'd also said they'd push it for COP28 too. And guess where that is? The United Arab Emirates. So no one's really surprised there, I guess. Cops are slowly looking more and more like a joke or a scam as Greta called it, but we should still pay attention to them. 
Meanwhile, oil and gas companies reported more insane profits this last quarter, particularly the U.S.'s ExxonMobil and Chevron. And then that leads us into the U.S. for the last story of the day, which is kind of a mixed story. The U.S. oil giant Occidental Petroleum Corp. and the Canadian startup Carbon Engineering announced plans to build the largest direct air capture plant in the world in the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin is a fossil fuel hub in the southern part of the U.S. The companies say this plant will be able to take up 500,000 tons of CO2 per year once built. That's 120 times larger than the current largest direct air capture plant. It's expected to be up and running by the end of 2024. Occidental plans to fund its clean energy transition by selling carbon offsets via this plant. So that's interesting. After all of that, there were other stories that I did not have time to cover. If you want more news, look at the source list for some honorable mention stories like Climate Fund approves plan to speed up coal retirement in Indonesia and oil companies helping fund Republican takeover plans. A lot of different options. By the way, if you are in the U.S., vote. If you haven't, let's be responsible citizens here. And that was your climate recap for Halloween, October 31st. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becca Sphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.